Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, our guest is Martin Gurry, who is the author of The Revolt of the Public, The Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. So your book, uh, I believe, was originally published in 2014 and has been credited as, as kind of predicting the rise of of populism that we've seen over the last few years in terms of the Trump election, Brexit, other things. And it's newly out. Uh, there's a new version uh, uh, published with a long afterward that deals with that. But I, I just wanted to start with some of the background. How did you get inspired to write this book? How did you come up with the thought that this was something that you wanted to, to look into? The early kind of ironic thing is if you read the books, I hope you have, you know that I absolutely don't believe in the capability of political predictions, uh, political experts making predictions. So the fact that I'm getting so much credit for having predicted anything to me is an endless source of merriment. (laughs) Um, Yes, you fall into the uh, Nassim Taleb school of, yeah. Yes, very much. Yeah, um, I was in CIA for for an entire career. And I, alas, uh, was not in what would have been considered the uh, sexy part of CIA. I, I never got my double O license to kill or anything like that. I was an analyst in the global media corner of CIA turned out to be the most significant part to be at in, uh, in the particular years where, where I happened to be sitting in that post because uh, it's it basically had uh, feeds of information from all over the world I had the privilege of having them translated when I wanted to so I had a view to a completely fantastic and and I think unprecedented transformation in terms of uh, just the sheer volume and variety of media when I started it out, you could take a, even a developed country, say Great Britain, I could pick from that country what was of interest to the United States of America in the media and in a very concise, chunky way, pass it onward to the people who are interested in that, the policymakers. Somewhere in the 90s, mainly because of the advent of television, all of a sudden television became like a symbol of civilization. So, you know, countries that were considered to be backward suddenly wanted to have lots of channels. Television began to explode. So that preceded the internet. And then, of course, came the web and uh, all the digital madness that, that surrounds that. At some point, it became not only difficult and, and, and unwieldy to even pretend to say that you were covering a country's media, no matter how small the country and no matter how undeveloped it was, there was too much. But it became clear that we had entered a, a uh, an information regime, information uh, environment that was unprecedented in, in, in the history of the human race, essentially. That can be quantified, and it has been, by, by people who, who like to measure those, those things. Information has grown from the day of the cave painting, say, if you go back, has grown in a slow, stately way. Then things go crazy. In the year 2002, the amount of information doubled that of previous history. The year 2003 doubled 2002. 
that trend has pretty much continued, more or less. If you map that to a to a chart, you get this the look of a gigantic wave, a, a tsunami. Okay, um, if you have read the book, you know that I have that chart in my book. And if you re- if you reflect in, uh, on that chart, if you look at it hard enough, you can find in it everything that has followed. And we saw it in CIA as that uh, as this wave of information swept across the world. I was in that privileged perch of watching country after country go into deep political turmoil. Somehow there was a profound connection between the masses of information and the political uh, stability of these countries. And I mean, you look at that chart and it's almost impossible not to ask yourself, how can human relations and institutions based on the old um, industrial model survive a battering from this monster? So that was the beginning of it. And there were, I wasn't alone. There were many of us uh, in that particular corner of CIA who were astounded by what was happening, could see uh, government after government begin to wobble. When I left government, I continued that research. And of course, it seems like that trend accentuated more and more and more. Although I don't believe in predictions, I believe human affairs are way too complex. And, you know, that is unfortunately CIS business model. So I, my skepticism is based from watching my old employer trying to predict for the president what was going to happen. And whenever tomorrow didn't look like yesterday, they had trouble. You couldn't really predict, but you could see that these forces were already here. They were just, for some reason, not noticed. People were not noticing that this was already here. So I wasn't really predicting. I was describing something that people were, for some whatever reason we want to talk about, uh, missing. And, of course, the 2016 year in general, with Brexit, for example, uh, and, of course, the election in particular, um, was a big turning point for the book. Is the, is the social media exposing the nationalism, the populism that was there, or is there something about the social media and the inundation of information that is maybe making people more nationalistic or populist? How would you describe that? I mean, I think there is a direct connection between just the massive volumes of information and what I call in, in the title of the book, subtitle of the book, the, the crisis of authority. And I think nationalism is a piece of it, but there are many, many uh, of these movements that are not nationalistic. They're just anti-authority. And, and I think uh, the digital tide, the digital tsunami has swept over these institutions and has basically stripped them of the sense that they knew. We know, you know, government knows. The news is, is all the news is fit to print. You know, the scientific establishment is unbiased and, and, and uh, just totally empirical. All these ideas are being exposed as, well, maybe yes, but large, maybe not. Because the information that was once uh, held by these institutions as part of their authority has now been surrounded by other kinds of information that question that. Some of it accurately questions them. I think that these are not infallible institutions. I think part of what, what has weakened what I call the industrial model of democracy is that it pretended to, to know much more than it did. Part of it, of course, is the fake news syndrome. It's just anything flies and a lot of stuff that is not necessarily tr- true might stick. But the whole result is a, a loss of authority that is, uh, I mean, if you look back at um, John F. Kennedy's time, I mean, we can talk about Europe and we can talk about the yellow vests, and I hope we do. But just to turn to this country for a minute, you look at John F. Kennedy's uh, day, and when the public was asked, do you trust the government? Somewhere between 70 and 80 percent said yes. Today, that number is 30 percent. And if you're talking about Congress, 
it's in the teens, <laughs> you know, and and um and this is global, as I said, and it's also not restricted to government. Trust in news, for example, it's also below thirty percent. So the days when you had a journalist, I mean, an anchor man, be voted the most trusted man in America, uh, those days are gone with the wind. Um, so the question is, you know, what has changed between then and now? And my thesis is that one of the most important things that has changed is is this. The fact that ordinary people have access to an almost infinite, I mean, for practical purposes, if you're an analyst at CIA trying to pick a source, it feels like the number of sources is infinite, all right? There, it might as well, from the perspective of a single human brain, be infinite, because you can never encompass it. That has been a major change. And that has, I think, brought in tow a, a tremendous destabilization and, and lack, the loss of authority for the major institutions of the, of the modern world, the institutions that have held up this industrial model. And on that point, you know, if if you have stripped the authorities, the anchor man, the politicians of that authority, uh, you know, you, there's sort of a comfort there of trusting in those people. But if you don't trust them anymore and you sort of feel uh, empowered to come to your own conclusions for a while, and then you've realized just how much information and disinformation is there, doesn't it kind of leave people sort of adrift trying to come up with their own views of the world? And maybe that's feeding some of the frustration and anger? Yeah. And um, you look at it from the 30,000 foot level, a crisis of authority can't help but trigger a crisis of uncertainty. I mean, reality is what it is, but the job of mediating uh, between faraway reality, of, of explaining and giving uh, meaning to the flux of events, that has been the highest calling of, of the elites. For example, Pearl Harbor, uh, what was it? Well, it was a day of infamy, right? It wasn't the day that the U.S. got caught with his pants down in, in, in the Pacific. And 9-11 happened because the perpetrators hated our freedoms and that because they disagreed with, with our, our policies. Events have to be mediated and explained. Those who do the explaining used to have the public's trust. But today, I, I think that trust has been destroyed beyond the hope of recall, okay? Uh, the mediator class of journalists, politicians, academics, it's been swept away with the wind. And, and as a result, reality is up for grabs. Okay, uh, I'm gonna in interject uh, Putin and the Russians here. I mean, I hope, I hope it's clear that the issue isn't Vladimir Putin or Russians uh, mucking around uh, in Facebook. My take on that, to get in and out of the subject as quickly as possible, is to ask the question, did, did the Russians try to influence uh, the 2016 elections uh, through fake news? And the answer is almost certainly, yeah. The second question is, did they actually influence the elections? And the answer is there's zero evidence for that and, and considerable evidence that, in fact, it had, it had no influence at all. There, there, was, there was no effect to whatever it was they were trying to do. And in any case, I think the matter goes a lot deeper than, than Russians on Facebook. I mean, a nation of 320 million needs shared sources of meaning and shared interpretations of reality. A, a democracy, our democracy, has to be able to argue from a common set of facts. But those who settle factual disputes have lost all credit credibility and are perceived as fakers themselves. On the issue of the elites, because I think that there are two different ways that you could look at what has happened. One, you know, so one popular view is that 
the reason why we have a crisis of authority or uh, lack of trust is because the elites are bad. They've lost the the mandate of heaven, uh, as the Chinese used to say, right, uh, because of all their failures. And then, of course, the response to that sometimes is, well, no, no, it's the problem is not the elites. It's, you know, the public or the deplorables, right, right. If were, you know, the Basketball that just has these like noxious views, they're ignorant, so on and so forth. It sort of sounds like what you're saying is it's you know it's not that the either the elite or the public don't have flaws. Of course they do, but it really wouldn't have ma- mattered who the elites were and how competent they were, relatively speaking. Just the nature of this informational change, as with the the printing press leading to all sorts of upheaval uh, in Europe with the Catholic Church and whatever. Uh, it's just kind of inevitable that you're going to have this loss of authority. Is that is that sort of yeah? The- I, I I I would say, and we're only in the early days of 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 that. I mean, the effects are just beginning to be felt. I mean, the interesting and I guess the frustrating thing about history is you can't run uh, like control trials to see what would happen uh, if we hadn't had the internet or. If other other things had happened, so I can't say for a fact this is a direct connection. Uh, other other than to describe what actually has happened, anything else you say is speculative. But I mean, to me, it's pretty clear that that information tsunami that I was talking about brought into being a public that is hyperactive and, and energized by the rejection and uh, repudiation and negation of, of the system. Um, the public seems to be largely uninterested. When you follow these rebellions from really from the Arab Spring all the way to the Yellow Vests in France, very uninterested in positive programs. They are simply against. They uh, aim to smash at institutions and at the elites, which they consider to be failed, self-serving, corrupt, and so forth. Now, back to the elites. They don't seem to have a clue about what's going on, honestly. They're confused. They're demoralized. Uh, The elites believe that all political decisions must come from the top, so they're eternally surprised. Eternally surprised. It's remarkable to me, I was just having this conversation today, how after almost 20 years since uh, since, uh, Hosni Mubarak was completely startled by this crowd that appeared in Tahrir Square, this has been repeated again Again and again in Spain, it has been repeated in the United States and Occupy, it's been, it been repeated in country after country after country, and it's always generates surprise. The elites simply cannot understand what's going on. Uh, the Arab Spring surprised them, the Brexit vote shocked them, and of course, the 2016 elections, I don't think they've come to terms with it yet. I mean, I think, there is, I think the resistance is as much a movement against reality of what actually happened as it is against Trump. So if you want a very unhappy and kind of um, downer uh, summary of the whole thing, the public looks at our ruling institutions right now as what I said before, the putrid swamp. The elites look on the public and see hordes of deplorables uh, in the in the grip of irrational impulses. And this frightening thing, it may not be so, but it may it is not an impossibility. There's no logical inconsistency that both sides are right. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the fallout from this, because one of the interesting things, and you talk, uh, you cite the work of Mary Douglas about the difference between uh, what she calls uh, the center and the border. In my simplification, would be the kind of hierarchical elite ways of organizing things and a kind of more anarchic, anti-authoritarian approach. Sectarian would be the word for it. Sectarian, right, yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about 
you know, some of these movements, whether it is the Arab Spring or the Yellow Vests, uh, Occupy, they seem to have been kind of unorganized in a sense and they don't really have leaders. They have kind of vague goals, but there's no one to negotiate with or try to come to some sort of settlement with. There's no one to take charge exactly. On the other hand, you do have a lot of these movements that have found some sort of that seem to be, you know, generated or the passions are arise from the same sorts of uh, impulses, but you know they fasten on to a figure like a Trump or a Victor Orban, right? Right. Uh, or Le Pen in France, you know, someone like that. Uh, who is able to at least temporarily kind of harness those same forces for some sort of program and actually in some cases, you know, take power, whether they can actually change things or not it remains to be seen. But how, how does that fit in? Given this dynamic, are, are we kind of destined to have these movements that either can't accomplish anything because they don't have any leaders or goals or when they do get a leader that is able to take charge they become the new bad guy eventually yeah, yeah that's that i mean that that is uh, the democratic dilemma um I, I read uh the douglas book and i was just astounded because it was written i think in the early 60s yeah um and it was a book of uh, sociology essentially i mean it was it was not about politics and it described so accurately what was going on in in the politics of, of the 21st century I I think you're right. I think the, the the great question is sectarianism and power is a contradiction in terms, right? I mean, she just divided the um uh, her her research, which was about risk taking, and when you accepted a, the kind of risks that we accept, for example, when we drive a car or when we you know that have uh, toxic emissions from a, a, a factory or whatever. So she was talking about that, but she described the center uh, in a way that uh, I I found just fascinating and one of the things she says is that it's of course hierarchical it's very respectful of uh of rank uh it is it moves very slowly it loves five-year plans it loves strategic visions it loves all these things that in the end tend to grind it into tomorrow being more or less like today and and, and it creates programs to that end but it's always surprised by change it is always surprised by change, but it falls with uh, what I just said before about all these governments that seem to be always startled because they were always looking upward at the person in charge and the surprise was coming erupting from below. And then she described the sects and, and she meant real sects, like like religious sects. And, and so, you have to sort of, yeah, so you have to sort of you know, adapt that to our circumstances and, and yeah, we would call them networks today, probably more like, but they, they have no interest in uh, policy. Their idea of uh, changing the world is to model virtue. In other words, they, they in their lives, they embody it. It's not like going to pass a law saying everybody must do this. They absolutely exist to oppose the center, which is sinful and, you know, awful and the source of uh, the root of all evil. And and they are constantly driven. It's funny because they're sort of utopian, so they have this idea of the perfectibility of, of, of the human race, where at, at the same time, they're they're driven by these beliefs that the world is going to come to an end real soon. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, it's going to be a, a catastrophe of untold circumstances because evil people are in charge. And when you map that against what goes on on the internet, you know, the, the digital universe, which is bigger than the internet, every day, it's just kind of remarkably prescient. And when you ask yourself, well, how does it work in politics? 
I mean, I, I, I write in the book, I think the first sectarian president was not Trump. I think it was Obama. And if you notice Obama's style of governance, he had a way of standing as president and he was kind of like the chief condemner, right? He was like a, a, a prophet in the wilderness who would say these things about our country are wrong. And he was always... I mean, you read those um, those uh, speeches of his in which he lists things like, um, for example, a rollback of, of, of uh, women's rights or uh, economic inequality. And you read those speeches and you look for, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, he was just telling us, this is bad. I don't have policies. I'm not into policies. I'm just telling you, if you if it weren't for me, the prophetic voice con- condemning all this, these people would be taking over. And that was as he, how he saw his role. And I mean, he made it work for him. It was very successful. So sectarianism uh, can work, but it, it's hard to get it to do things. And I think Trump is, a, is somebody that is, I mean, to call him a sectarian, I don't really know what, we could talk about Trump a little bit later on, but he's an animal of, of, of his own kind, and I think he is uh, as much uh, an effect of, of the public's temper, of the sectarian temper, uh, as he is uh, a cause of anything, honestly. Well, I, I saw that you described Trump as a peacock in a room of buzzards. What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean, the question was, why does the media, which clearly does not like Trump in the least, in the least, obsess about him constantly? And if you take, again, three steps back and look at his competition um he he is a peacock he is always coming up with something weird and new and different and and that's he is somebody who doesn't look like your typical politician doesn't sound like your typical politician and is not interested in doing either of those things everybody else all his opponents mumble in jargon all right and and he just kinds of uh he he speaks in rant he speaks in in the modern language of rant Mm um so i mean two more different kinds of uh, creatures that could not be that the old industrial model politician that was supposed to be you know very proper and 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 very um, detail oriented and very knowledgeable and a lot of gravitas and this peacock that walks in the room and starts saying outrageous things but by stealing everybody else's attention basically sucks the political air for everybody else would it work for anybody else in the United States is there anybody else even on the other side of the aisle that could play the same game I mean, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I am not into day-to-day politics, so I, I, I don't know, and, and I don't I don't know how successful uh, in the long run it's going to be for Trump either. He he is I, I sort of had, have described what he does as uh, he he is a high wire act w- without a net, and and it's a hard thing to keep up without falling. I know you're not into predictions, but presuming that something doesn't happen to greatly restrict the access to information that we have or change some of these dynamics, how might this sort of thing progress? I mean, do we do we just continue to see take the take the yellow vest protests in France, for example? Do we just continue to see things like that? Occasionally they topple a government and then, you know, the new government faces uh, the same problems or you have a situation in Egypt where you have mass protests to get one person out, then you have mass protests to get his guys back in basically a couple of years later. What might be some of the progressions that we see from here? 
I mean, it all depends, of course. Uh, to what extent can the public be reconciled to to the system? You're right. I mean, I, I, that's funny. That I get that question a lot. Is you say you don't do predictions, but and then right. I gotta, then I'm asked to do a prediction. I can. I mean, it doesn't. Everyone take a must lot of be it. tempted. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, I of course, I, I, I love speculation, and I, I can do that uh, very easily. But I feel like I prefer to speak from some sort of body of information and uh, stick as closely to that as possible. And what I can say without, like I said, anybody with any imagination can see that we're in for a turbulent ride. The public is a new thing and its mood is, is not a happy mood. And the elites we have right now, first of all, I don't think you can run modern society without elites. Anybody who thinks that is, is right. I think, pretty hopelessly utopian. So you need elites. So the question is, are these the elites who are going to reconcile the public to the system? And I mean, you hear what comes out of their mouths. And it, I mean, I'll, I'll put aside the Harvey Weinstein aspect of what these when, when these individuals get to where they are. Um, they seem to many of them, a disproportionate number, indulge in some pretty contemptible behavior. But just from the political perspective, they are so clueless. I mean, I was just reading one of uh, Emmanuel Macron's top people was asked, "Why? what happened? Why did this revolt erupt? And he said, our policies were too intelligent and too subtle for most people to understand. That is literally the words he used. Yeah. I mean, when people are that clueless, I mean, there's no other word for it. Yeah. Even I if you believe to- that, you, you, if, you, if you really believe that, you probably shouldn't say it. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he it's said smart, it, yeah. I think, spoke volumes, right? right yeah. I mean, yeah, anybody is, is free to think inwardly as they're trying to rule a country. Well, I have to rule a whole bunch of people who are stupid. But the person who actually says it tells you that there is a, there's a degree of cluelessness and of self-worth people. I mean, he was clearly not saying that for the public. He was saying that for his fellow elites. So they were all kind of, you know, gently applaud and and, and, and say, oh, yes, we're all so smart. To make a, a very complicated story short, I honestly don't think this particular elite class that we have inherited from the industrial age, what I call the industrial elites who are wedded, wedded to distance from the public. That is what they love. They get to be elites and then they get to have bodyguards and they get to have metal detecting machines between any of us can get to where they are. I don't think they are the ones who are gonna reconcile the public to the system. I think this is a failed elite class in in a happy event, if a happy outcome of this, of this crisis of authority get replaced as every elite eventually gets replaced by people who are a lot savvier about at least how to talk to the public and ideally in the best of all possible worlds our members feel like members of the public themselves that would in our democracy that wasn't that very long ago you didn't become a sort of hollywood star by being elected to washington that's a fairly new thing and and um and i think that can happen and it's probably in some sense happening already i think part of the turmoil part of the pain uh part of this resistance to reality comes from the fact that this is an elite class that is slowly being overtaken by events and shoved out of history so I would like to ask about a non-political aspect of this. Good. Um, and I'll start with an, an analogy, which is that in the in the early '80s in San Francisco and some other places, doctors started having patients with these really rare, you know, long extinct diseases, you know, exotic things that they had to look up in textbooks and you know from earlier ages without sanitation and other things like that. And it was only after a little while that they realized that people who were coming in with these 
these diseases were just symptoms of uh, underlying c- condition, which was uh, the AIDS virus, right, which mm. was compromising people's immune systems so that they were susceptible to things that normally the body would be able to fight off uh, quite easily. Right. I have thought, because I have noticed uh, over the past few years, groups and beliefs uh, that seem, you know, not only just wrong, but almost, you know, bizarrely strange. Uh, you know, you can go on YouTube and find people arguing passionately that the earth is flat, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, or hollow, or there are a race of alien lizard hybrids that are running everything or. Oh, no, that, that's true, actually. Birds don't exist, right? You know, all sorts of, all sorts of weird stuff that sometimes, sometimes I wonder like, are, you know, are these actual serious, do, do people actually believe this? Is it just a giant put on or whatever? But some people, seem to actually believe it and i don't know is there is there something are, are we facing a kind of information equivalent of the aids virus in that you know our our traditional guards against you know believing crazy stuff have kind of given way and so you have all these sorts of things popping up yeah uh, i mean i i i mean i would advocate the aliens i have the secret belief well, you here. i mean you, you are you did work for the cia that's so right that's, yeah that I, goes without saying i i have information i can't divulge but, but <laughs> no. let's let's not uh slam the aliens Right. I think there have always been people who believe in in, in uh, outrageous things. I think the difference between, say, 30 years ago and now is that there was a, a, a class of people who possessed the authority to say, you can believe in that if you wish, but that's silly. And and they by authority, I mean that the rest of us listened to them and believed that. They said, well, if so-and-so said it, if Walter Cronkite tells me it's silly, it's silly. Okay? He's the most trusted man in America. So what has been lost is authority in in settling those kinds of bizarre opinions or whatever and, and of course it, it the closer you get to reality or to what you know a lot of people might consider to be accurate representations of reality the fuzzier things get basically what i said about the mediators who provide us with meaning and provide us with frameworks and and, and narratives that that we all have lived in uh, when they go away, basically reality is up for grabs, and um, everything begins to kind of unbundle. That is a, a pretty familiar trajectory for things on the internet. If you pay attention to the internet, everything unbundles and personalizes. Newspapers uh, have unbundled into just uh, streams of stories, and and uh, the old music albums uh, unbundled into personalized playlists. So we now have information playlists, and we have highly personalized ideas about truth. And until you have an elite class that can elicit admiration and authority as opposed to contempt and rage, which is what what is happening now, that is probably going to continue. And I don't think the human race has changed one bit. I don't think there are more people believing weird things than ever before. It's just that those who had the authority to put a veil behind those people say, leave them alone. They have their own little kooky ideas. They're harmless. But this is what we all agree is the case. And huge numbers of people would agree consensually, yes, that's what we all agree to. Those those elites with that kind of an authority are gone. Now they they will almost certainly be back. I don't think you can you can um, I don't think you can run a democracy until uh, unless that happens eventually. So is there any way to put the genie back in the bottle? No, you got to move forward. Um, I, I think I mean there are ways of reducing the distance between the elites and uh, and the public. And I, I hate to put forward the little country of Estonia because it is very little. But they have done some amazing things with uh, uh, basically digital government. They have given people uh, ownership of all their 
official information. You know, we basically today have very many different personalities depending on who's talking to us and we have to fill out forms and I'm one person to the State Department, another person to my motor vehicles department and all of that has been centralized and, and, uh, and, and made fast and efficient in Estonia. This is eventually going to happen. I mean, you have no idea how terrible the federal government is with digital matters. I, I live that that tragedy, right? There is something about a hierarchy based on uh, people who wrote a lot of papers in college and did real well at that, that does not want just a, a quick little link and then people do things and you're, you're not in the middle of it, making sure that they don't make mistakes and you're so important because you're in the middle of it. Right now, that's what's holding things back. But th- there's a generational change that's gonna happen. It's gonna, it's happening as we speak, as I said. So I think that's one thing that, that can happen. And the other one is, I think the industrial elites are going to be swept away. I think they 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 simply have lost uh, the right to stick around. Um, I don't think it's going to be a revolution or anything like that. I just think new and 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 uh, more digitally savvy people are going to eventually take their place. And I think when you look at uh, Trump and you look at uh, Macron, they brought in, I mean, neither of them is what I would call, you know, digitally savvy. They're both very old-fashioned in the way they look at, at media, but but they brought into all kinds of new people behind people who had never been in politics before. I think this is going to continue to happen, and out of that, there's going to be a culling process, and the people who are in charge now, who just like to be up in those very high perches behind their um, metal detecting machines, I got to get swept out. So I'm an optimist in the end. <laughs> yeah, I, I get accused. This is kind of surprises me every time. It's happened about three or four times in the middle of an interview that somebody says, that is a really dark vision, or so you really are a, a um, techno-pessimist, I can call that. And my my take is is this one. I mean, if I come to you and I say, you know how you've been feeling kind of badly? Well, I just did tests and you have double pneumonia. You would not turn to me and say, boy, that's a techno pessimism. That's <laughs> that that's that's not that's that's not being gloomy or dark. Now I now I can get cured, right? This is this is my diagnosis. I'm not dying. It's, I can get it's, cured. It's gloomy if um it's gloomy if you are invested in the current system. Exactly, which, as you say is going to be swept away, right? Exactly. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But our democracy wasn't born on the industrial model. It's a very different. You go back to Jefferson and, and the founders. It was a very different idea of government than what we have today. What we have today probably hails from the 1920s, the 1940s, peak to the 1960s. Uh, it, it's very different idea that uh, Thomas Jefferson would be horrified to look on and would, would kind of d- disavow any kind of intention that that's what he wanted. But it's, we consider it our democracy. And, and I think it, it will probably, the digital age, it will have to change. I don't think it's any, it has, hopefully it will change in a positive way, but it will have to change. All right. Our guest today has been Martin Gurry. Thank you for joining us. 